The following is a message from our 10-week series, Hashtag Happy. For more, visit LinworthRoadChurch.com. I am so very happy to be with you this morning and have been working really hard on this message and uh, for you and wanting it to really be helpful and effective to you. And I, I, I pray and hope that it is. Um, I feel a little vulnerable, too. There's uh, some areas here we're going to bridge into that we've never, I think, bridged into here on a Sunday morning, and a little bit controversial, so I feel a little vulnerability as well. But um, just trying to do, be faithful to what God, uh, God wants us to speak on and wants us to address. This week's message is called Happy Differences or Happy Diversity. It's quite a week for a message entitled Happy Differences. At the moment, our country is anything but happy with our collective differences. The election ramped up our deep divisions. But even before this election, there were deep fractures simmering below the surface, especially as it concerns race. And so this morning, with this topic of happy differences, I As I prayed, I wanted to be able to address how the gospel speaks to our racial, ethnic, and class differences and conflicts. And to at least begin working down this question of how the church can lead the way, how the church can be a source of healing, and what must penetrate our spirits for us to see things as Jesus sees them. Now, next week, we're going to conclude this series of messages with a talk called Happy Mission. I'm going to invite Pastor Mike to join us on the stage for that talk. Then after that, we'll start a four-week series leading us to the Christmas holidays around uh, and, and celebrate Advent. That'll take us right to Christmas morning, which, by the way, this year is on a Sunday morning. So if you're here in town, we're going to be together on Christmas morning. But I want to look at happy differences this morning in a little bit of a different way. And what I want to do is I want to follow the big picture story of the Bible. The Bible really is one big story, and there are four components to that story. There is creation, there is sin, there is how God addressed that sin through the coming of Jesus, and then there is the end of the, of the world, or the redemption of all things. And while diversity is not the only thing a part of this storyline, it is a part of this storyline. Now I want to share a couple of little qualifiers here before I pray. Two little qualifiers about this area of diversity. First, I think it's important for us to recognize that Celebrating diversity is not something we came up with. I hate to break it to you. You're not the generation that invented multiculturalism. Okay? We were not the first to recognize there is a beauty and value and inherent worth in every culture. And secondly, and Murray wisely points this out in the book, the Moral diversity that today is advanced under the banner of multiculturalism 
not only celebrates differences, but it goes a step further. And it suggests that all beliefs, moralities, and practices of every religion are equally valid. Now, the Bible does not take that second step. Uh, The Bible does not say that every religion or morality, if sincerely believed, is equally true. So, again, I just want to share that qualifier since that's uh, when multiculturalism or diversity is expressed in our culture. It usually has that baggage attached to it. So, okay. Well, I'm going to start in the beginning, going to begin at the beginning, but let's take a moment and invite God by His Holy Spirit to, to uh, speak to us. Okay? Will you pray with me? Bow your heads and pray with me. Father, in Your Son's name, we come before You and ask You that You make this morning and what's true from You extremely real and practical to our hearts in such a way that actually changes the way that we think and see the world. And our Father, desperate prayer is that we would see the world as you see it. That when we worship you, we would get a vision, a a profound, clear vision of who you are and what matters to you. And oh, Father, that what matters to you would matter to us. So open up our hearts today. Remove every distraction. Through Christ we pray. Amen. 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 Okay, I'd like to, as I said, I want to begin at the beginning. The first storyline in the Bible is creation. God creating the world. The world is crowded with diversity. And what happened when God created? Genesis 1.1 says that God steps into the void, into the emptiness, and he creates. He, he gives order to the chaos. And as he gives order to the chaos, things emerge. Life emerges. Life is born as he speaks. And the reality of things becomes apparent. The land, the sea, the vegetation, the trees, etc., etc., Now, immediately, we recognize several things. One is that there is differences among the creation. There are differences. But we also recognize that these different parts are interdependent. Each part of creation needs the other parts to coexist. The land and sea. Day and night, the plant world and the animal world. Even modern science today confirms for us the delicate balance of the ecosystem. There are shared qualities among the things created, yet there's also differences. Nowhere can we see this clearer than in the creation of, guess what? Man and woman. Look at Genesis Uh, 1, verses 26 and 27. The author writes, he says, God said, let us make man 
And this man, this, word, this Hebrew word for man is the generic term for mankind. It includes men and women. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, in the second chapter, this is the first chapter, in the second chapter, we learn from the creation story that God breathed life into Eve by taking a rib out of Adam. Now, that's important. For it signifies that they, too, the man and woman, have shared qualities. They have shared human qualities. We also recognize that from, for Eve is chosen uh, as a suitable companion for Adam after he had depleted all the other candidates for that job from the animal world. But to Adam's delight, she is also different, right? She's different. She's wonderfully. She's mysteriously different. And she's physically, she's intellectually, she's emotionally different. And those are all a cause for good. And when brought together, they complement and enhance one another. One plus one in this case is greater than two. Sorry, my math friends out there, math lovers. One plus one equals more than two in this case. The woman made in God's image reveals unique things about the nature of God that the man could not otherwise see. And the same for the the woman. She needs the man in order to see facets of God's character that she would otherwise miss if left to herself. They need one another. Like the rest of creation, they are different yet interdependent. This is the part of the DNA of creation, and it, it also reveals to us what God is like. It tells us what God is like. We see that God himself is in a perfect community. God is oneness, perfect oneness in diversity. You know, the early church fathers tried to wrap their heads around this mystery. Words from Jesus, such as we find in the 17th chapter of John, make it clear that Jesus existed eternally as a distinct person. And that before time began, the Father and Jesus dwelt together and lived to worship and glorify one another in perfect love. Anchored to Jesus' own words, the church fathers grappled with the reality that Jesus, the Son, God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit shared all the characteristics of being God. Yet, there were differences, there were distinctions in their, pers- in their person. Thus emerged the doctrine of what we call the Trinity, or the Godhead. So see, we're made like this, we're made in His image. 
We are not made to be the same. Differences are glorious. And we are not made to be independent, separate from one another, but rather we are made to be interdependent. And only when we are interdependent do we flourish as a human race. Ah, but we look out in the world, and this is not what we see, do we? We don't see complementary differences enhancing one another, do we? We see rather differences being the point of terrible, terrible division. And that brings us to the second part of our Bible storyline. The second part of the big picture story of the Bible is that there's this thing called sin, our independence from God, that comes into the story. Now, just briefly, some of you know the story. The first man, Adam, became a rebel. There was a tree in the center of the Garden of Eden, his paradise. And the command not to eat from that tree from the Lord God was a reminder to Adam that he was different. He was the creature, not the creator. He was not God. But Satan, the fallen angel, Adam's tempter, lied to him. He convinced Adam to betray God. And you remember what he said. Satan told him that by eating the fruit of the tree, he could effectively erase those differences and become like God. There's a pattern represented here demonstrating the effect of sin. Now, I want to try, if you'll stay with me here, I want to try to apply this idea to how cultures, groups of people emerge and develop. You see, when sin enters in, the differences that God designed for our good, those differences get squeezed through the mold of human pride. And what is there? There's an overt And there's a subtle push for sameness. For sameness. Rather than celebrating the diversity of others, dominant cultures, dominant cultures assume their superiority. They assume they are better and smarter. And driven by self-love, dominant cultures tend to seek to make everyone else become like them. Culturally, this is called assimilation. You see what I'm doing here? If you can just, again, under these two big headings, differences and interdependent, that's the DNA of creation. But when sin comes in, we get these effects. We get sameness and we get assimilation. Now, a little bit about assimilation. Not everything about assimilation is wrong. A country, a nation needs a shared language, needs shared cultural norms to exist. But this is not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the sinful drive for sameness that carries with it a personal pride. It carries with it a distaste for others who do not look or dress or think the way 
that I do. It is a desire to simply have a minority culture go away. You see, in this kind of assimilation, the distinctions of the minority culture, what makes it unique and beautiful, what even they can reveal about God, melts away under the pressure to conform. Now, let's make this really practical. In light of all the rhetoric regarding immigration, which has been such a hot issue in this past election, I want to urge us to think as Christians, not allowing liberal or conservative talk show hosts to form our views on immigration, but to let the Bible speak to us. You know, nearly every Christian leader, conservative, or progressive believes there should be a fair and legal process guiding immigration. And that there should be reasonable protections set into place. And I think Jesus is concerned with that. Because he's concerned for life. But I also think that Jesus is concerned about his church. And it's concerned for our hearts. There is that line of thinking that, as Murray points out in the book, that he himself confessed to. A thinking that says, you know, I'd be happier, I think I'd be happier if there were not minorities living here. There's a certain rhetoric and train of thinking that says, this is my country. Which what that means is that my culture and my way of life is superior to others. And I would just ask, is that the attitude? What is the attitude we see reflected in Jesus regarding the immigrant, the foreigner? I'm drawn to the Great Commission, where Jesus calls his church to be a witness to every boy, girl, man, and woman in every people group across the world, whether they live across the world or whether they live here. I'm also reminded that in the Old Testament, how God would once a year give the Jewish nation, send them on a little journey, an event that would commemorate, that would help them to remember that they too were once foreigners, strangers, and aliens in the land. God never wanted them to forget that. Some of us forget that. When we think of the issue of immigration, we must think, we must think like Christ. We must think with the eyes of Christians and not simply protecting a certain way of life that we assume is superior to others. Now, the second part of this, the second part of this, under the interdependent, you see, rather than being interdependent, what happens when sin comes in is there is separation. We don't recognize our need for one another. And that leads to separation. And in the world of race, it even leads to segregation when sin comes in. With segregation, there is certainly not the appreciation of difference. There is certainly not the appreciation that 
a, unique, a culture distinct and unique can reveal something about God that I need to hear about God. With segregation, there is the underlying assumption that we will tolerate you as long as you do not mess up our way of life. This is the effect of sin on a culture. Rather than the dance of unity within diversity, sin erases differences or separates us, segregates us from one another. Okay? How are we doing? That's part two of our storyline. Part one is creation. Part two is the impact of sin. Here's part three. Here's part three. How did the coming of Jesus address this? You know, the coming of Jesus not only answers our thirst for forgiveness, but the cross also answers the problems of sin that become corporate. What I mean by that is that there are biases and sins that get woven into the things and the systems and the institutions that we create as human beings. So yes, the gospel addresses our individual needs, but the gospel also addresses the structural sins that emerge. Turn, if you would, to Colossians chapter 3. I just absolutely love this chapter. Um, I think it's one of the best chapters in the Bible that describes how we change and also what we are changing to. Recently, I memorized the first 16 verses out of this chapter, and I was particularly struck by something which I'll comment on here in just a moment. Now, this chapter begins in the first four verses by urging us to set our minds and hearts on Christ, to recall that we have a new life with Christ, that we will be, we will be made like Him when He returns, and that given who we are by faith and given our future glory, and given that we have Christ's resurrection power in us, verse 5, Paul tells us to put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. He walks us through a list of individual moral sins in verse 5, and then in verse 8 through some social and relational sins. These sins in both lists mark a life succumbed to temptation, a life lived solely for self-gratification, and a life given over to the indulgences of this time-space world. Now in verse 9, he extends the list of sins to lying to one another. But then from these individual and relational sins, in verse 11, it feels like he jumps to a totally different subject. Let me read this beginning at verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. 
Now, Paul has been talking about individual morality, but in verse 11, he jumps to this picture about the way a new kind of person, recreated in Christ, esteems those who are different. He jumps from addressing individual sins to a vision of a new humanity that eliminates the class, ethnic, and cultural divisions that defined the first century. We cannot underestimate the staggering weight of this statement in Paul's day. Can you and I even begin to imagine how radical this was, how offensive it was? particularly to advantaged groups, to the Jews who hated Gentiles, who were embittered enemies for centuries and were miles apart religiously and culturally, to the elite and educated Romans and Greeks who despised the unsophisticated and uncouth barbarians and Scythians, to the owners of slaves who depended on the lower class to feed their engine of materialism, It seems like a different subject, but it really is not. What is Paul saying? I think really it's very simple. As we walk out what it means to be a new kind of person, it will impact our private morality. It will impact our social and family relationships. And it will cause us to move towards those we used to ignore or reject because they are not like us. And to even move towards people when it feels awkward or vulnerable because I'm not like them. But this new kind of person does. Now this is such a wonderful scripture that I've meditated on quite a bit. Let's just camp here for a moment on verse 11. This new self that Christ is making like that potter is being renewed. That means to be made new. This is a process. The verb is being. So it's a process. It does not happen instantly. The renewal is based on knowledge, not just feelings. It's based on the knowledge of what? Knowledge of the image of the Creator. As we see God, as we worship God, as we come to know God, He will more and more mold us like that pottery into his image. And when people interact with you this week, they will see a reflection of what God is like. The Creator has made us different and yet made us to be interdependent. This reality for the Christian, Paul says, should lead us to a life free of sinful prejudice. This knowledge should lead to vision and action that breaks down social and racial barriers. At the end of verse 11, he says, Christ is all. Christ is in all. What does that mean? Well, Christ is the sole source of all reality. He is both creator and judge, and we owe him everything. There is no rational basis outside of our own self-justification to say that one person deserves grace and another does not. Christ inhabits anyone who invites him into their hearts. 
If a member of ISIS repents towards Christ and follows him as Lord, he is accepted. Christ is in him. If the candidate you despised and voted against is a genuine Christian or becomes a genuine Christian, Christ is in them. If the uneducated, unintelligent, unrefined, the person you step out of your way to avoid talking to accepts Christ, he is in them. The gospel is inclusive. The entire group represented in verse 11 can become of a part of God's chosen people described in verse 12. Looking at this verse, we asked, or this, this section of verses, we asked the question, is individual morality important to the follower of Jesus? Absolutely. It's, it's right here. Absolutely. And is ridding the heart of sinful prejudice towards entire groups of people unlike you equally important? Yes, it is. It's right here. It is all part of being a remade man or woman in Christ. Some conservative Christians ignore the latter, our social responsibility. While some progressive Christians play fast and loose on the private morality part. What does God want for us? God wants us to come away with both. Finally, at the end of history, part four, we've seen through creation how God, what is in the DNA of creation, differences yet interdependent. We've seen how sin reverses that, turns it upside down, causes us to push for sameness or to separate and segregate. We've seen how the cross comes in and begins to reverse that effect of sin in a corporate way. And now finally, what does the end of the Bible story tell us? The last two chapters of Revelation are the end of the story. It is a story of redemption. As the one who created everything, who bears final responsibility, wraps everything up because he's responsible. He will finish what he started. He will restore the Garden of Eden. He will restore paradise. He will make all things new. And those whose names are written in the book of life will gain entrance to the New Jerusalem. And New Jerusalem, it says, that there will be representatives from every nation will come to this city. And look at what they bring. Verse 25 and 26. I'm going to start reading at verse 24. By its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. About this passage, the Puritans believed that this was, a, this was commenting on the diversity of culture that individual nations will bring into the new Jerusalem. Diversity is a wonderful thing. And the glory of different nations can even today be seen through architecture, art, music, and food, etc. But this verse also indicates that at the end of time, we will witness and appreciate this glory to an even greater extent. Now, I would add to this passage, 
Revelations 5, verse 9, teaching that heaven will be populated from people by every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Creation, sin, the cross, and redemption all point to the happy differences, to the happy diversity that God has created. That God has created. Okay, so having looked at that big picture story, I just want to give you two quick examples, two quick, uh, or two quick application points on this before I close out my, my portion. My friend John Hoppler, uh, who is such a great example of this, has been putting together a curriculum of messages that he's going to give in a lot of different places. Actually, today he's giving it at one of our sister churches. And John has coined the phrase, he calls it leading by listening. Leading by listening. I don't know how many of you are Facebook advocates, but what I noticed this past week on Facebook is a lot of people talking right past each other. A lot of people not really listening to one another. And isn't it amazing, by the way, and I'll again share what I've shared before, the limitations of social media. Isn't it amazing what happens when we actually get together face-to-face, eye-to-eye, and actually listen to one another? Things radically change. My goodness, look at Trump. He spends an hour with Obama, and he's ready to, you know, keep elements of Obamacare. <laughs> I mean, things just change. Things just happen when you meet eye to eye and face to face with people. Now, I want to tell you what happened to me this morning, and I'll bring it up in here in the context of the story. I had something happen to me this morning that has not happened like in two or three decades. It's just an absolute surprise. I'm on my way here at about 5.40 in the morning, and I'm just thinking about this message, knowing how challenging and difficult it is and thinking about it and so forth and pretty caught up with it. And I drove through the village of Powell. Again, about 5.40 in the morning. And um, I'm, I'm not really conscious of my speed. <laughs> and so I look up in my rearview mirror, and I see lights behind me. I think, oh, I better, I better pull over. And, uh, it's, you know, emergency vehicle or whatever, but it was not an emergency vehicle. <laughs> I was going 30 in a 25 zone. I've gone 30 through that zone many times. And uh, the officer asked me, he said, well, did, did you, just a young, nice, really nice young man, seriously. Um, he said, uh, he said, so um, are you, were you aware how fast you were going? And I, I thought about it for him. I said, mm, no, I wasn't. And uh, so he, you know, went back to the car. And I, they, he did whatever they do and took my stuff and came back and said, sir, thank you. Just go a little slower. Never know about this early in the morning, deer and so forth, which is really true. And he said, uh, just be a little more careful. I'm going to give you a warning this time. Now, i got to tell you, I was very calm. I didn't really feel afraid. I didn't really feel any fear. Uh, he's really a nice young man. And it uh, took about maybe 10 minutes, and I was on my way. Again, it hasn't happened to me in, I don't know, 30 years. Um, and I got to thinking about a conversation that we had with Lafayette Scales. And some of you might know Lafayette. Lafayette is one of the uh, most... Uh, well-known, prominent uh, African-American pastors in our city. He leads Rama Christian Church. He's a dear brother, a sweet brother in the Lord. And again, John 
in this whole frame of leading by listening, John invited Lafayette to join us several months ago. And again, this is, you know, we're, we're still in the middle of all the Black Lives Matter and all the, just all this conflict. And so we had Lafayette join us, and uh, we just spent an hour, the pastors in our city, asking Lafayette to help us understand what it's like to be an African American in this particular climate. And as a pastor, what it's like for Lafayette to lead uh, his church in this particular climate. And it was so good. We just learned so much from his heart simply by asking questions and by listening. And I, again, the story about, um, story about being um, pulled over, this is something we talked about. And Lafayette, uh, and I want to say this carefully, Lafayette, in his church, many of the young African-American men in his church are very angry. They are very angry. Lafayette also has about two or three dozen policemen in his congregation. And so he has to speak to both, both constituencies. And really the, the, really, the answer is, is grace to both. It's, you know, stop stereotyping and all those sort of things on both sides. But, uh, you know, it was something for me to learn, which I never knew, I never understood, and would not have understood had we not asked. And that is Lafayette talked to us about what is it like for a young man, a young black man in this city today to get pulled over by a cop. What is that like? And what I never understood is that, you know, in the, in the black community, um, they have this thing called the talk when their young sons are about ready to learn to drive. Now, when we talk about the talk, we usually talk about, oh, that means the sexual talk, right? The birds and the bees. And I'm sure they have that too. But in the black community today, their talk is about what to do when you are pulled over by a cop because it's absolutely terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. Son, keep your hands on the wheel. Son, do not reach into your pocket unless you ask explicit permission. Son, do not reach into your pocket until you tell the officer at that moment, I am going to reach into my pocket in order to get my my identification. Now, I don't know about you, and maybe there are some exceptions here. I never needed to have that conversation. My parents always told me the cops are good. They will help you. They will serve you. I never had a reason to fear them. But in the black community, with a long history, that is something that even up to this day, those talks take place. Again, that's not a wide-sweeping condemnation of officers. Obviously, there's many, many wonderful, fantastic officers. But it is a reality in the black community. These are things that we don't learn unless we listen and unless we lead by listening. And so my encouragement for you today, the, the application, if John were here, he would say the same thing. Listen. Reach across to someone and be willing to listen. I want to end. I have a whole list of to-dos, but really that's the main one. I just want to end by focusing on just a tad here on Jesus himself. A tad on Jesus himself, who was the ultimate barrier breaker. Let me just review a little bit about what he did and to reflect, and I'm going to quote from Murray here, to reflect on the barriers that Christ Jesus smashed. He smashed national barriers by sending the gospel to all the nations. 
He smashed racial barriers by making a Samaritan woman one of the first converts. And a Samaritan man, these were hated by the Jews, Samaritans, a Samaritan man, one of his best examples of love. He smashed gender barriers by making women some of his closest friends and defending them from abusive men. He smashed age barriers by welcoming children into his arms and blessing them and rebuking those who hindered them. He smashed social barriers by befriending and eating with sinners. He smashed ceremonial barriers by touching lepers, healing them, and sending them into the temple. And he smashes class barriers by embracing rich and poor, the educated and uneducated among his disciples. Even his disciples, two of them were on opposite places politically, became part of his trusted core. But most of all, most of all, Jesus smashed the massive barrier that sinners, 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 that's you and me. Sinners who find that we are inclined towards self-love. Sinners who are inclined to believe that our culture and our way of life is not only different, but superior. Sinners who, for whatever reason, ignore, walk past, reject those that are different. Sinners who... uh, line up every resource in order to just only be around people that will reinforce their beliefs, their thoughts, their actions, their opinions. It's for these kinds of sinners like me and like you that Jesus died for. And he dismantles that wall brick by brick as he shed his life to bring us to God. You know, how do we begin a life free of sinful prejudice? By first remembering God forgives us in the person of Jesus Christ. And with that gift, he gives us a pure heart and a sincere love and a good conscience. No longer must we find a way to see myself as superior to others through whatever process or means it is. But now I'm free to love. I'm free to love fully. I'm free to love perfectly. That's the change that God makes. And that's why the church can be the one place. The church can be the one place in the culture where where every class, every social distinction, every racial distinction, every ethnic distinction can be represented and can come here under the banner of of the cross. The church can lead the way in this. The church can become a healing force in our divided country. I've asked our life group leaders for this week to conclude your time by praying for healing for our nation, by healing for our divisions, and, and that the church, through both individual and collective actions, that we would lead the way in bringing racial reconciliation. We have every possible resource to do this. We have every possible resource to lead the way in this. Let's pray.
Father, thank you this morning for our time together. And I want to lead us, Father, this morning that, that if anyone here needs to confess before you that self-love, self-love has driven them towards a prejudiced view of those unlike them. Father, will you lead them and lead us to a place of confession, a place of remembering our forgiveness, a place of repentance, and Father, a trust in you to live and exchange your life through ours and to reach across, to walk across that room, to reach out to a person unlike us. Father, what would be the collective outcome if thousands of Christians simply walked across the room and reached out to a person of a a minority culture or a person different in some form or way? What would happen? Father, this world would change. So we ask you, Father, help us to be the church first to one another, first to one another in this room. Help us to be the church. And then secondly, Father, we walk out of this place today. May we embody the gospel and be the church, be a force for reconciliation, both leading people, Father, to you and leading people to reconcile to one another. What a mission, the ministry of reconciliation. Let us embrace it, live it as a church. We ask you, Father, to receive our singing, our music, our offering, our worship, our resources, our tithes, and may you multiply, Father, it with good all over the world to every place you lead us. God, may it bear fruit for your kingdom. And Lord, lead to eternal happiness. In Jesus' name, for his glory.